welcome to season two, episode five of The Behavioural Investor. We've got a special guest here today, Dr. Joy Leary. It's our second psychologist that we've had on the show, so it's a pleasure to have you on. Could you introduce yourself, Dr. Leary? Absolutely. It is a pleasure to be here with you, gentlemen. My name is Joy Leary. I am a licensed clinical psychologist and behavioral finance consultant. I have a telemedicine practice um, here in the U.S. I live outside of Napa, California, and also have the privilege of working with advisors within the finance industry it's so interesting and I'm really excited about what's happening within the industry because more and more people are recognizing that people's financial lives, it's a whole lot less about economic theory or something you read about numbers or markets as it is about psychology. We can't solve people's financial lives like math problems. Because the truth is humans are this complex calculus of their personal history, their brain, their emotions, and their environment. And all those things come together to form who they are as financial individuals. I'm glad we've finally come across you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we should have had you on each episode. So (laughs) we'll get as much as we can out of you today. I should also mention that it was Dan Crosby that introduced us to you on Twitter. So shout out to Dan. Yes, Daniel is just a very special friend and I really respect his work. Yeah, and he's an inspiration for us as well. Basically a reason why we started our podcast. So getting straight into things then, in our interactions before the interview, it seemed that there might be some psychological factors that are holding people back in starting down the path of serious wealth accumulation. For example, there might be beliefs formed in childhood that are unexamined. These are like early foundational beliefs which set the dimensions for people's life regarding wealth accumulation. Is that right? And and could you expand a bit on this idea? Absolutely. As humans, we are very much impacted by our own history. So we, we carry forward templates and models that we have about how the world works, how we can anticipate other people will treat us and interact with us, how we feel about ourselves. And a lot of those scripts are formed early on. And people oftentimes without even fully consciously knowing or understanding it, really copy paste and carry forward a lot of things that they experience earlier in life. And sometimes that works well. Sometimes those things don't serve them very well as they move through their life. So as we think about this in terms of someone's financial life, If you think about someone's early experiences, they are sponges observing, okay, what do people do with money? What roles do people in my family play? What did my mom do? What did my dad do? Did we talk about money? Did we not talk about money? When money was discussed, how did I feel? Was, Was it a fight every time money came up? 
when we drove by people who were affluent, what comments were made in the car? All of these things are really subtle, but I think they really embed in people and impact them going on. And as we think about what are beliefs that people hold that sometimes hold them back later in life. This is in therapy. I talk with people about this a lot. How are you unwittingly getting your in your own way? And yeah. many times this has to do with the story people are telling themselves mm. and the stories we tell ourselves in our mind, because that's who we hear more than anyone all day long. They take us somewhere. So it's of value to step back and examine what that story is, where that came from, and if that is sending you in a direction you want to go. So some people enter adulthood holding on to beliefs like money is scarce. So that can create all kinds of financial anxiety. They can believe, well, money is hard to come by. Money is something I shouldn't talk about, or I can't talk about, or it's not polite to talk about the belief that the pursuit of wealth is greedy. People are going to judge me. The idea that what matters the most is external appearances. It doesn't matter if I can afford something or not, but it really, really matters what is forward facing to the world. All of these things can really then shape and drive choices people are making in their financial life. I'm, I'm laughing because you're describing me. <laughs> like I, I, I have, I had this thing where I was obsessed with Swiss watches and I wanted to have like this $10,000 gold watch. So that was the, the, the external appearances thing. The, the shame thing or, or not being able to talk about it, 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 like I think a lot of people actually, they've grown up where there's often arguments around money. When you're a kid, I, I remember some of the worst arguments when I was a child was my parents. It sounded like they were going to get divorced in some of those arguments about mm -hmm. money. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Is everyone like this? <laughs> yes, what you are, you are describing the human experience of money. You know, well, I think one thing that I hope really starts to happen and happen soon within behavioral finance is we need to shift the narrative from one of pathologizing. You know, there's a lot of talk about misbehaving and irrational behavior. The choices people make in their lives on some level makes sense. We are wired, we are hardwired to survive. So at some point, some of the things we do were adaptive in some contexts, in some situations. They maybe aren't now, but we hold on to old ways of working and interacting in our life. And sometimes it's, if you think about, if you were a kid, you were riding a bike when you were five years old, okay, that bike isn't going to work as well for you as an adult, but sometimes the things people do behaviorally and how they interact with people, it's like they are, they're simply riding a bike that's a little too small for them. And that's why I think developing the insight and being able to step back and self-reflect and understand, okay, where, where does this come from is important. Like going back to this point about shifting the narrative. If when people perceive 
as though they are doing something wrong and they experience that shame and it's constantly the, well, I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that, should often precede shame. That's not going to motivate or energize people. I think we need to start normalizing that money is messy for everyone. Yeah. I work with lots of people in the finance industry. Nobody has all their, everybody has money luggage that they are pulling around with themselves. Even the finance people, even finance. Exactly, exactly. And I think when we can start to just, <laughs> yes. And, and when people start to feel better, they can have that, that sense of, oh, it's okay that this is a struggle. Okay, we can talk more openly and honestly about what the struggles are. And then we can come up with more creative solutions. But when people are operating from this place of shame or self-doubt, it's hard to be creative and people are less likely to have the motivation to then take the actions in their lives that are really going to help them move forward. Joy, I just have a quick question. What are some of those common themes that you find with people, whether they're in the finance industry or not, or if people that are working in the finance industry, do they have common issues that they bring to you? So certainly there are themes. Something I talk with people about a lot in therapy. So if we think about therapy, oftentimes, and there's, there's actually a parallel. I was having a conversation with another financial planner about this today. There's a parallel in a process that happens with therapy and with financial advising often is someone is in crisis. They're like, I have a problem. Something is really bothering me. I, I need some help. So they come through the door. So in therapy, maybe they are feeling really depressed. They're feeling anxious. They can't sleep. They're fighting with their spouse all the time. So that brings them through the door. We get them through the crisis and they kind of stabilize. So and then at that point, this is where for me, the work gets really exciting because when things are more stable, that's when you can go deeper and really self-reflect and then really start to up-level your life and start to think about how can I start to experience the success I want in all spheres of wellness, physical, emotional, relationally, in my work, in my finances, and all of those things have a knock-on effect on the other. So this is why I'm talking with people in therapy about their money a lot. One thing that is really exciting for me to watch is people really overcome under-earning. This happens a variety of ways. Sometimes we need to work on self-confidence issues, assertiveness, Talk about, okay, what's holding you back from asking for the raise, pursuing a different job? What, what are the fears that are really keeping you ensnared that we need to help you cut through? Well, that, that reminds me of, of scarcity. That was another, when you were introducing things initially, one of the items you mentioned was a feeling of scarcity. And that was another one that resonated with me as well, because I come from a middle-class background mm -hmm. in essence it was shameful or it was somehow egotistical or elitist to talk about earning money trading shares was never discussed i can see how as a small child that did set the guardrails where the bowling ball of my life could go yes 
And something I hear, and actually this is a theme I see with people in the finance industry, is maybe they did come from more of an experience of scarcity or want. And like that rips deep into the psyche of a child. So then going forward in their life, they want to, rather than, like I said, copy, paste and carry forward, they want to course correct in the other direction. They're like, I know what that felt like. And I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to have a very different future. I want to make sure that my children don't experience maybe some of the financial trauma that I did going on. So then it can be a positive thing. They can channel in the right direction. Okay, what do I need to do to create more financial stability? Now, sometimes what can happen is those earlier experiences can, they cause financial anxiety and then that carries forward in someone's life and the truth is a lot of people struggle with financial anxiety and you may think well it must be the people who don't have a lot of money who are struggling with that and that's not necessarily true and I think some of that has to do with if this is something that has always been an issue a focus that Sometimes because it's a deeper thing, more dollars or more currency, that doesn't make the anxiety go away. And then what people do to manage and cope with their anxiety can really trip them up financially as well. Because some people go into denial. Some people avoid things. Some people become very preoccupied in their anxiety. Some people may become overactive and That's jump in and out of the, the <laughs> yeah <laughs> jump in and out of the market and be and be checking on things all the time looking for zooming in on these micro shifts and losing sight of the big picture so financial anxiety is a very very powerful force and they think if people can just recognize it there's a term we use in psychology sometimes we have to name it to tame it so recognizing okay, this is what is going on. I can notice this in myself. You know, anxiety is uncomfortable, but it is adaptive. We need anxiety to stay alive. The function of anxiety is to let us know that there's a threat so that our body can start to be primed to fight, flight, or freeze in order to protect us. Now, what happens sometimes is there's a misfire in our brain or we misperceive a threat or we're imagining a threat far into the future that we may or may not encounter, but our mind and our body gets revved up as though it's happening right now and it's right in front of us. And that's when it's important to kind of have the tactics and tools to step back and recognize, okay, what is going on here right now? And what do I need to do to manage this so that I don't do something that is actually hindering me? This is reminding me of, actually one of the initial topics I was thinking we could talk about, which was acceptance and commitment therapy, where, as I understand it, emotions are almost considered as inputs or, or sources of information that occur on a stage and you are detached, you're an audience member and you can occupy a, a mental position where you simply observe these things happening like waves on the beach. Yes, I don't practice acceptance and commitment therapy exclusively myself. 
I come from more of a psychodynamic background and have developed a more of an integrative style as I've moved through my career and worked with people. But uh, some of the things I borrow from ACT that I love are, is this concept of they, there's a lot of focus on values. And I think really helping people align their lives to their professed priorities is important. But I love what you say about it, what, how you're talking about emotions. I think oftentimes, again, we talk negatively about being emotional. Our emotions are very, very valuable. Now, and sometimes people label emotions as good or bad, and that, that simply is not the case. We need to experience a full continuum of emotion. Now, what gets people in trouble is what they do when they experience certain emotions, but that's why it's important to recognize, okay, there's, there's a choice in the action you take. But all feelings have functions. They are important sources of information. So let's take, let's take anger, for example. So you, it, you're feeling angry. And sometimes that's something people say, that's bad. Okay, no, that's information. Something wrong has happened. There needs to be some corrective action taken. And sometimes anger can energize and mobilize you to take that action anxiety that its function is to keep us alive so let's let's step back and look at that i was struck by this wonderful metaphor you used of us as adults riding around on these tiny little bicycles trying to get through our adult duties and responsibilities how do we make the bicycle bigger i love that so that's an excellent question I think we find a bicycle that fits by learning new ways, recognizing that some of the ways we cope and stay alive, especially in times of heightened emotion. So seeing things as very black and white, struggling to look into the future, those kinds of things, understanding there are different ways that we can cope and manage. So let's go back to the example of you have financial anxiety. What is one of the ways you can kind of deal with and positively channel this? Okay, I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to do something with it. I'm, I'm going to find meaning in helping other people understand this. That is far more productive than spinning as a financially panicked person who doesn't fully understand what's going on or what to do. I'm curious around your view, Joy, on modern day distractions. Don't know if this is a particular area of your focus, but people's ability to focus and achieve the goals can be influenced by distractions such as mobile phones and and that. Do you find that people come to you with, with that as an issue? Absolutely. I think this is something that all people struggle with. I know this is something, even in my life, I have to make a very concerted effort on this. I've done a lot of reading and thought. I think a lot of people don't understand, even we, we live in a world that is vying for our attention and is constantly, our, our attention is constantly fractured. 
So our ability to just sit and focus, that doesn't happen much anymore. If you think about even your relationship with your phone, I talk about that with people a lot. Some people are addicted to their phones. Twitter, let's talk about Twitter. That is designed to keep you a, a captive audience. So you see the light light up on your phone. You're like, oh, I want to look. Let me see what happened. And every time there's a like or or something like that, your brain gets this little dopamine hit. That's a, what, what's called a neurotransmitter, which is a very powerful drug in your brain. And people get addicted to that because it feels good. So what happens, you're getting notifications on your computer, on your phone. So I, I tell people, I really encourage people to, if you want to get more work done, stow your phone in another room for an extended period of time. And we actually have to start to retrain our brains to focus more because the more we, we keep that habit loop going of just going back to the thing that's giving the quick hit, the more our attention and energy is going to be fractured. And I think this is coming at a real cost to relationships. You know, there's going to be a generation of children who are used to their parents looking down at their screens all day long and seeing their life through, well, let me capture this photo so that I can share it with the world. Like something really important and powerful is missed when we live our lives that way. Part of the challenge with mobile phones is that you can't simply classify them as being bad or good. No. They are so attractive and so, and so useful in so many ways. You know, you have Google Maps, you have... The ability to call and text people, um, so many wonderful features. It's, it's absolutely pull out the bad from the good. Yes, they are powerful tools. It's like money. Money is a powerful tool, but some people use it in very destructive ways. Some people use it to make incredible change. You have to look at technology the same way and really be intentional about how you are allowing it to impact you and impact your life. So i got one more follow-up then. It's great that you've raised the topic of dopamine again, because in the first clinical psych interview with Tom Watts, I think it was season one, episode two, he also mentioned the power of dopamine. And he talked about things like episodic future thinking and other ways to essentially juice the dopamine reward system to help us or to incentivize us to engage in positive wealth accumulation behavior. Mm -hmm. So if we were to hire you as a consultant in developing a mobile app to exploit the dopamine reward system in the way that poker machine companies do and social media companies do with these poker machines in our pockets called smartphones, what sort of recommendations would you give to us, to Ben and I, to make an app to cause uh, a good financial behavior? People love seeing progress. They like feeling as though they are doing something. And sometimes if we think about someone's financial life, the things they are doing are, are not helping them. So I think always giving people something that is controllable, making and giving them even something visually to see, okay, I'm moving in the direction that I want to go. And sometimes we also need to experience some short-term wins. So that's kind of what that notification hit gets. A tweet is not that important in the scope of your life and the world. 
but oh, that, oh, somebody like that, that feels nice. So then you keep coming back. So if you are helping someone work toward a financial goal, you need to give them some of those short-term hits, something they are excited about, something they can feel meaningful change in right now as they are taking the small steps. Because if you think about building wealth, that doesn't happen in one fell swoop or one leap. That's all of these small, tiny, boring steps that yeah. happen over time. We need to incentivize the boring, consistent steps. Okay, great. So if other people want to get to you first in consulting with you to develop this app, <laughs> how, how can they reach out to you? Certainly. So my handle on Twitter and Instagram is my name and my degree. So the spelling of my name is J-O-Y-L-E-R-E-P-S-Y-D. And I'm also active on LinkedIn. You can look up my name and my degree. My website is my name. So joylary.com. And I also have a newsletter publication, Freud and Finance on Substack. So well, that name. can be, you can subscribe to that at joylary.substack.com. Okay. Let the competition begin. Let's see what mobile apps do with behavioral finance come out of this. Wonderful.